0: Yeah. Do you think? Do you think elves have milk? Like, <laughs> do you think that they generate milk?
1: I mean, they the mammals, right?
0: Are they mammals?
1: Yeah, they gotta be. You know, <laughs> any of those magical species have to be mammals. All of them. Oh, I mean, you know not Every single one, but. Okay, and you don't, the, the, the you human don't think origins. any of
0: them evolved from like lizards or something? <laughs> if I had to pick one, the elf would probably be the closest to the lizard that I could. And lizards don't make milk, to my knowledge.
1: Yeah, but elven women have breasts, which they do. Clearly, clearly means they have mammary glands, which means they produce milk. Therefore, they're mammals.
0: Uh, all right, yeah, I googled it, lizards don't make milk.
1: Welcome to Death Sentence, everyone um we we're back there's a second episode after hiatus uh, more elf discourse on <laughs> this one we had a little bit of elf discourse on last episode we're going full bore into this one elves are mammals but, you know they they have breasts so and we're trying to and
0: nail hair. down the difficult questions we handled some mark fisher that's some good stuff now we're handling primarily elf physiology yeah. also another topic
1: yeah both of those are important um and if we <laughs> if we can work out them both i'm i'm sure we we can help bernie win
0: uh-huh.
1: um we're here today with uh jg michael from parallax views uh if you haven't actually i'll, I'll let him describe it because it's a really good podcast that you should be checking out but jg uh what is parallax view
2: Well, first, I want to say thank you uh, for inviting me on the show and uh, allowing me to pick a subject that is a little bit different uh, from your usual territory of uh, literature. Uh, But as to your question, uh, Parallax Views is sort of my eclectic podcast where I cover everything from pop culture to occultism to heavy metal and uh, also leftist politics. Also a little bit of a conspiracy theory sometimes, although... I'm more of a conspiracy skeptic than people realize, uh, but I cover all kinds of things. Um, I've done exposés on cults. Oh, I, I just did an interview with uh, Barrett Brown. Yeah, I was going to uh, bring who that one up because was... yeah, that? that was associated with Anonymous. Was that? Sorry,
1: a, I was going to bring that up one up because I, I listened to that yesterday. And it was really interesting. Uh, in the last episode, which we recorded earlier today, we we brought up Peter Peter Feel and the whole Dark mm-hmm. Enlightenment that stuff and uh, Barrett Brown. I mean, listen, listen, go over and listen to the episode on Parallax Views, which we'll link to in the description. But um, he's a yeah, it was a journalist who was uh, in and around anonymous when that was a thing, and he's been kind of poking at Peter Thiel's evil Nazi fascist space empire, and um, has been poked back by Claire Lehman from Quillette, you know, the head measure in Australian conservative news organ um
2: yeah, he was, actually did not know about uh that article about boris johnson until i brought it up in the interview and he was yeah. like what
1: <laughs> was that was that the one where they, they were talking about boris johnson uh, having like uh the physiology of like a german woodcutter yes, yes
2: oh god you that know, was the new phrenology uh I, you know i was also i wanted to mention real quick uh I've actually had someone that may interest your listeners on my podcast, uh, Ramsey Campbell, who is sort of like the Stephen King slash Lovecraft of Britain. I mean, I guess alongside Clive Barker. So if you're into lit, I also cover literary subjects and have had Ramsey Campbell on the show.
1: Nice. Yeah. Um, it is massively eclectic. Every, yeah. Everyone is, every episode is interesting in its own way. And it's Yeah. Really good show
0: gareth I, I I'm not as plugged into to podcast stuff as Gareth like i uh the the running joke and it's only it it's only barely a joke is that prior to making this I emphatically did not like podcasts i didn't i pretty much only i was like i like hardcore history sometimes but that was it thought they were just bad um then I got tricked into doing this by a mutual friend um started as a guest with Gareth and then we hit it off really hard and it and if Gareth would start feeding me stuff he's like oh we're going to talk to this guy so you should actually check out their work and I'm like yeah because I don't know any I don't know shit about podcast bro and he's like no I know no I'm here to help you so like I hadn't heard of your show until Gareth was like hey we're going to talk to this guy you know I was talking to him you should check out his and then it's like this is not the first time it's happened but I was like this guy's fucking tight. I really like his show. And he's like, yeah, no, that's why we're talking to him. I don't, I'm not picking these not at sure. random. <laughs> like, I'm not just reaching out to whoever. And I was like, yeah, really? yeah just like, oh.
2: Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going to add, uh, most people are really confused uh, by Parallax views at first because I don't like to be pigeonholed. So I cover a massive base of topics. And I actually, uh, I had Harvey J. K. on recently, uh, who's written the book, um, take hold of our history, make America radical again. he looked over uh, my list of guests and he said, you cover a lot of different topics. Uh, this is not my usual type of show that I'm on, but he was, he was a good sport and came on the show. Uh, even though I'm all over the place a lot of times. Yeah. That's, I, and that's that, a good way that, to be.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's the power of it. Because I think that um, uh, we were talking about Deleuze before I'm going to talk about him again. There's that, that notion of rhizomatic thought that it shouldn't. So, uh, Deleuze has two models that he proposes. There's arborescent thought, which is you have your little seed, and then things that spread off of it. It's like, okay, that's that's whatever. And then rhizomatic thought, which is a lot more um, uh, freeform, free directional. Like things are allowed to be, things are relational to one another, but you don't necessarily go, this is the one direction I'm allowed to go. And I like that vibe that I get from your stuff, where it's clearly a map of your headspace, not necessarily one element of your headspace and that Perfect. filters out in a really really cool interesting way it feels a lot more human as well which is something that it turned me off to a lot of um podcasts youtube stuff um like eh, that that's a general kind of big turn off because it winds up feeling like people shutter a lot of interesting directionalities that things can take because it's like no that's not the one area that I've allowed myself to point at and you don't have that hang up which is yeah, tight. it's
2: very free form and, and conversational and I sort of uh, let things flow I like the reference to uh, Deleuze although I would add uh, Guattari in there as well I'm a huge oh, yeah. uh, Guattari fan yeah
1: half time when we say Deleuze we mean Deleuze Guitari. but um, anyway we, what was cool is that um as I mentioned, it rhizomatically links to our previous episode of Mark Fisher, who um, was a big, as many uh, modern philosophers are, big Lovecraft influence there, and object oriented uh, ontology and Nick Land and all that stuff. Very, very Lovecraftian. So we're going to be talking about the Color Out of Space movie. that came out at, uh, I believe it was the tail end of last year. It was. Directed by Richard Stanley. You probably know it's got Nicolas Cage in because he's a meme. And um, why don't we just start with a kind of brief summary of it. Uh, JG, do you want to take us away on to a little bit of a summary of what, what's going on in the movie?
2: Well, first, you, you mentioned Nick Cage, but I can't believe you forgot to mention Tommy Chong. Yeah, he's,
1: in, <laughs> he's in two scenes. Um,
2: it's a he, nice he, extended cameo.
1: He is—he's um, very good in it, actually. Like, I kind of liked. I, I normally hate those like groovy man hippie characters, but he—he he kind of pulled it off. Um,
0: oh, it does help so... that that is him. Oh yeah, like that's—that's that's who he is. <laughs> <laughs> Arguably, he didn't know they were being filmed. They just pointed a camera at him, and he was like, "Yeah, this is just how I think and feel."
1: <laughs> I'm sure Nick Cage was the same. So
0: well. Did you know Nicolas Cage uses a shamanic method for uh, method acting?
1: I I did know that. Um yeah. he was especially good at that in the, the Ghost Rider movies where he
2: that uh, I hear he listened to uh 9-inch nails a lot to get into character for Ghost Rider actually. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can see that.
1: Yeah, we, we're going to go into his performance a little later cuz it's um most of it's very standard just he's just a guy. But then uh then something happens. He, he starts channeling from a, a strange place. And um, it, it, it's odd. But uh, as with many Nick Cage things, it's either genius or, or just madness. And he's just drunk. But, um, well, if
2: you want me to take it away with the, the plot, yeah, do it. Uh, I can do that. So The Keller Out of Space is based on an H.P. Lovecraft story. And it centers around this family, uh, the Gardeners. There were sort of your, I guess, in this interpretation of the story, uh, your stereotypical sort of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant family. And they've moved to the rural countryside right outside of a town called Arkham. And Arkham is sort of a weird town in and of itself. It has many legends and talk of witches. It's a very old town, very superstitious. And they call this countryside that the gardeners live in, the blasted heath. The sort of folks in Arkham are very much not keen on going to this countryside area. They have a lot of superstition about it. Anyways, the Gardener family, I believe that they have a lot of issues going on. They have a daughter, Lavanya, who is a Wiccan, she really doesn't want to be stuck in this countryside. Uh, There's the mother, Teresa, who recently had a mastectomy, and she feels like she's unattractive to her husband, uh, Nathan Gardner, and that sort of has really affected their relationship. Uh, Nathan still loves her dearly, but He's had he has his own issues as well, because I believe within the story, he's sort of a filled maybe like wannabe painter. And he has a lot of trouble keeping the family together at times. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, fights with uh, LaVanya because she's going through the teenage angst phase. Uh, their son. Their oldest son uh, is, you know, getting into smoking weed and whatnot. The family, especially the mom, is not used to that. So there's all kinds of sort of uh, family dynamics going on, dysfunction. And it all comes to a head when this strange sort of purple-pinkish meteorite crashes in their backyard. And it disappears. But the meteorite leaves this strange color that sort of changes the surroundings. It transforms everything around the estate. And eventually, it starts to transform, both psychologically and physically, the Gardner family themselves as they sort of drift further and further into a state of family dysfunction really in a way this is not just a a sci-fi horror movie but also a drama about the destruction of a family unit Hmm.
1: yeah i mean the the family thing is something i want to bring i want to go into a lot because i think there's some interesting stuff there to be said about what this has to say about the family Mm -hmm. um i mean basically my, my my take on what it has to say about the family in the abstract, is um, you know, this is a, a a minorly dysfunctional family. They're, they're not that bad. Usually when filmmakers want to uh, heavily criticize the family, there'll be like horrible sexual abuse. There'll be violence in the family. But these guys are, are nothing. That My family was much more dysfunctional uh, growing up. And I wouldn't say I had a, a dysfunctional life at all. It was very normal middle class life.
0: Yeah, it felt the, the, the depiction of of the family itself felt like a very regular and very uh, regular, not in like a derisive way. I mean, that is mm-hmm. so if you if you know um, Richard Stanley's body of work, uh, it's shocking that he had such a sort of rich and literary depiction of a regular family where they had. Um, you know issues like you know a mother who survived cancer, kids going through normal like kid growth stuff. Uh, a father struggling to process the changes going on in his family, making weird, arguably bad decisions because he can't make it. Ha- it's like oh, it's actually you know it yeah it
1: feels pretty normal. Like, it's, it's um yeah they, and they clearly love each other. They they have nice family meals. It's it's not. It's not a, it's not a. All families are terrible and fucked up, and they will destroy you. Film. If if the meteorite didn't land, these all these people would go off to college and they'd have happy lives. It's not. They're not falling apart.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not dysfunction on the level of like uh, what we would see in a movie, like for example. Uh, what, movie, what was the, uh, the yeah. big heroin addiction movie uh based on the Hubert Selby novel I'm blanking on it Requiem for a Dream yeah. it's not like that level of dysfunction
1: Or that uh, movie um Happiness
2: Oh Jesus That's Christ. a better example actually oh,
0: that's, Yeah that's such you know, a fucked up film Yeah uh, yeah
1: that that's that's a every family is fucked up and will destroy you movie Did this is a what I think this movie has to say is um so a book came out last year called uh, "Full Surrogacy Now," um, came out on Verso, I believe, and that argued for the abolition of the family unit, basically, and its replacement by more communal forms. Kind of pre-pre-standard uh, radical feminist uh, thing, and you know it uh, comes up a lot in leftist thought in general. And this kind of has a. I was just thinking about this that book when. I was watching this movie because it, that book doesn't ever say like all families are awful. All they do is sexually abuse each other and end up killing each other. It says like, yeah, there are fucked up, terrible families out there, but there are nice, loving families as well. But it's just that that particular form is not really equipped to handle uh, life in capitalism or, or just like life in the 21st century in general. It's a very atomized. Even though there's like five people living under one roof, it still seems very atomized. It's, it's not as resilient as more communal ways of growing people together, which is kind of what I was thinking a, a, a reading of this film could be. That's, mm-hmm. the, yes, if everything stayed exactly the same, the Gardener family would be absolutely fine forever, but things didn't stay the same. It things accelerated. They, a chaotic agent entered their lives, i.e., the color. And as soon as that happened, the family unit isn't strong enough, or even just numerically big enough, to handle this kind of thing.
0: We it's, even see it's a there's a replication of a uh, a thematic concept in Lovecraft's work in general, and and this film in specific that I doubt Lovecraft himself specifically meant because he was a real piece of shit. But, um, oh, yeah. uh, but that, like many, um, like many protagonists in, in his work, in this case, it's a full family that's a protagonist, um, they more fall to disillusion and disunion when they remove themselves and cut themselves off of a communitarian approach. Like, Arkham itself is roughly preserved, it's the family in isolation that atom- self-atomizes itself and self-alienates itself from society, um, especially given that the opening of the film is basically that Nathan, the dad, has gone, uh, my wife just went through something really traumatic, and my kids are struggling to process it, and I'm struggling to process it. So I'm going to strand all of our family off in the hinterlands, raising alpacas for That's right, baby. Milk. <laughs> um milk's back <laughs>
1: <We've got> milk <laughs> in a big,
0: now. big way um but it's it's almost precisely that self atomization that one puts them in harm's way. it puts them in direct contact with the color when it arrives, um which to explain to people uh who hear it uh it, very literally it's a color it's uh imagine a color that's so fucked up that you die. <laughs>
1: and and the, that color instantly is pink.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. well it's de- it's depicted as pink but um at least so this is where i think having read the story can flesh out the film in a satisfying way. Um if you've read if you uh, if you've read the story it's described as a color that like can't necessarily be described mm-hmm. and that witnessing it fucks you up and here like it's hard to do that in a filmic sense. So they use pink, but it's, it's meant to imply like an otherworldly, like impossible color. But yeah, it, it's, it's,
1: it's the old um, thing of trying to film Lovecraft where yeah. we try, where everyone knows what Cthulhu looks like, big dragon squid. But if you read Call of Cthulhu, where he actually turns up, Lovecraft does a kind of little modernist uh, little maneuver where he'll say like, yeah, it's a squid. It's a dragon. It's vaguely humanoid but it's nothing like those things. And here, we, yes, it's pink on the screen. Those are indeed pink pixels, but it's not meant to be pink. It's meant to be something you couldn't possibly describe.
2: Yeah, there's been the th- a lot of uh, criticism of um, uh, Stanley's adaptation uh, over that, that you know, it, it sort of takes the punch out that he depicts the Keller. Uh, I don't know how you can really make the movie without doing that though. And I think yeah. overall he sort of bridges the gap. And I, I think the way Stanley handles it, he sort of is able to turn this movie into a very weird psychedelic occult nightmare in a way that I'm not even sure uh, would have been intended by say Lovecraft.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. Lovecraft definitely had much more of like an Ambrose Bierce kind of like late Gothic story with just the small tinge of weirdness. This very much derives its thoughts from everywhere lovecraftian uh work has gone since uh mm-hmm. where like lovecraft didn't necessarily have that psychedelia in his work but psychedelic people put that back into it and sort of like a the weird like eternal recurrence thing that like once we came up with the idea of psychedelia and the psychedelic experience we looked back at lovecraft and when That's part of it now, even though he would never have done that.
2: I think what's really interesting about The Keller Out of Space and what Stanley does with it is that he does things that are in contrast to how Lovecraft would have probably portrayed this. If Lovecraft could have made a movie version of The Keller Out of Space, I think Stanley really pushes back on certain things. I think he pushes back on Lovecraft's atheism. I think that in this movie, I think there is like an occult explanation for what happens. I don't think it's simply extraterrestrial. Uh, We can get into that later. And the other thing I find interesting is that the way race plays into this movie, uh, the character of Ward Phillips, who's the hydrologist that comes to the uh, family estate to sort of check the water supply. And he's the one that finds out that something is wrong, that something is up. And he's really the character that's clued in this whole time. He's very careful, very smart. He, you know, he's like sort of the the survivor guy, not not to give any spoilers, but he's like the guy that is going to be able to get through this, it seems like, throughout the whole film. And I think Lovecraft, knowing his racism, would have been like horrified by that. It sort of upends Lovecraft's racism Uh, And we see the sort of wasp characters are the ones that fall victims to things more than this uh, African-American character of Ward Phillips, the hydrologist. Hmm. Oh yeah. Lovecraft would have died.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That, that was a very deliberate choice on the part of Richard Stanley that I think that also gestures to um, what I meant by, so we've covered this a billion times on the show, but the shortest version is yes, Lovecraft was a wild racist, inexcusably so, even substantially more racist than people of his time. So to knock that little bugbear of, well, everyone was racist then. He was much more so. People wrote letters to each other about how fucking racist he was. And it was racists <laughs> writing those letters. Um, but in the years since, there's been a lot of deliberate work to go. Can we Can we? Like negate out the racism within his work and still get something out of it because sometimes you can't like you can't unracist the turner diaries and get a functional thing out of it 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 just wouldn't work but with lovecraft there was a lot of stuff um and that was a very deliberate effort it's been very and so this feels very much a um not even so much just a rib at lovecraft but also kind of a a tweak at the like over-anxious and perhaps overzealous people who are like, no, you can't touch his stuff whatsoever. And it's like, no, if I just throw some black characters in here, the racism more or less disappears. It no longer feels like, um... Eh. So obviously Lovecraft might have considered the color out of space that weirds things and destroys them to be black because of black people. Um, but all of a sudden you make the color pinkish, you put in a black character that disappears it's just like it, it becomes a nonsense read now
2: i want i wanted to comment too it's interesting uh not to go too off topic but stanley is now going to be uh, adapting uh, the dunwich horror next uh, another lovecraft tale and it was interesting i had a conversation with someone that said oh that's great because uh the dunwich horror is his least problematic story uh, it's his least racist story and i'm like no it's it's pretty racist it's just like <laughs> it's racist in a way that like we wouldn't understand because he basically portrays these sort of backwoods characters in it uh as being dutch he's like even racist towards the dutch in that story <laughs> that's how racist he is he even hates like you know uh certain europeans and considers them not white enough i mean he literally very maxed odd character
0: out, he maxed out the amount that he could be racist towards non-white people but he had more racism left over so he had to just start putting it in
2: different buckets I mean, the weird thing is, I think he would be like, I don't think if Lovecraft were around today, he would be writing great stories. He would be, and I, I, can I swear? Incredibly online. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course you can swear. I was going to say, I think he would just be an online shit poster today. Oh, he would be
1: the most online guy. He would never log off.
2: He, he 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 would be online
0: also in the bad way like he wouldn't be generating like insane takes that so you'd look at them and be like look at this crazy motherfucker he'd just be saying neo reactionary bullshit.
1: Dude he, would he, fucking
0: love Moldbug.
1: Oh, he would be yeah, he'd be tot- he'd be the third neo reactionary guy between Moldbug and Land. Yeah, Moldbug well, Land, Lovecraft would be neo reactionary and 20- and they'd be hanging out at Peter Thiel's house and all just drinking blood in, oh, in there.
2: I I can definitely see that. I can definitely see uh, Nick Land and Lovecraft hanging out and it being horrifying to me. Um, Something I find really interesting, though, is why Lovecraft sort of maintains a power um, in pop culture, even though uh, there's this horrible racism that I think you can't remove from his work uh, fully. You, You can never really fully do that. Like race and... Uh, Racism and classism are a huge part of Lovecraft and his mythos, Uh, but it's interesting to me uh, in in two ways that Lovecraft maintains a lot of uh, sway within popular culture. The first is that his idea of the horrific, and this is something that John Michael Greer has pointed out, his idea of these horrific elder gods, in a way... Uh, people no longer see these monsters as horrific. I mean, you can get a Cthulhu plushie now, mm. um, a Cthulhu doll. There's something odd to me about the fact that Lovecraft monsters have almost become uh, characters we embrace in some ways. You know, you can get a little stuffed doll of uh, Cthulhu, uh, you know, to to snuggle with when you go to bed at night. Uh, it's, it, it's ironically.
0: Wild. It it underscores an interesting thing about his work, which I think reclamation of his work from racism isn't about, how us to put it? It isn't about making a non it, it it isn't about removing race. It's about removing the hatred of races. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's sort of like some people's approach to it is that because he has a horror that engages with raciality, as a concept that the only way to defang that is to become like 90s colorblind like i don't i don't see race anymore so it meanwhile there are these sort of modern almost i i see this almost as like the cutification of things like cthulhu or in more um mundane like horror space um things like uh shoggoths don't aren't they're used to imply horror but no no one's like no one's reading about a shoggoth in 2020 going like oh! um you know like i guess that was hank hill if he saw a ghost um <laughs> but uh it's be- because part of the thing is within the story of lovecraft most of the time those creatures aren't aren't doing anything they're just being there Like they're not really
2: portrayed as evil necessarily. They're, they're sort of just, uh, you know, they're, they're not like malicious. They're just sort of there and they do what they have to do.
0: There is a moral
2: judgment. And so once you get over the inherent,
0: this is where, um, a a lot of work has gone into perhaps portraying, uh, Lovecraft's work as racist, more through perspectivism that like the main characters can't process that they're being decentered that there's things other than them, things that don't look like them, things that don't act like them. And that's the thing that breaks them. And all you have to do is be fine with that concept. And all of a sudden it's not a uh a major uh all of a sudden it's not a major issue anymore.
1: Yeah, I remember in um one of the uh one of Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen books, um obviously Lovecraft and Sorry, not, obviously, all the elder gods and stuff exist in those because all literature does exist, and the main characters just are just like hanging out with some um, Lovecraftian entities. You, because you know, if you just talk to them and on their level, then you know they're just things like us. They're just aliens, and um, yeah, that seemed like a really cool way of approaching it.
2: Well, I just wanted to add, to I think the reason that Lovecraft can still be scary and, you know, incite some fright, even if you're not of that racist and horribly classist uh, mindset that he has. I mean, when you read something like uh, the horror at Red Hook, Mm. it's it's beyond it's like John Bircher level paranoia. Uh, I, I, you know, it's pretty horribly xenophobic. But I think the reason that Lovecraft can still scare people, even if you're not within that racist, paranoid, xenophobic, hateful mindset, is that within Lovecraft, and I think you also see this in Thomas Ligotti, there's this sense that you can search all you want for the answers through science. Uh, And even if you find those answers, it won't be enough. Maybe science won't provide you the answers to the world. and I think that gets into critiques of scientism that were made after World War II. I think the idea that technology and science and progress would save us all really comes into question after an event like, you know, the Holocaust. I mean, it puts into question the whole project of modernity and really how far we can go with science. it It calls everything into question about our civilization. And I think the appeal of Lovecraft is that, he sort of says, well, you know, maybe there isn't some light at the end of this tunnel. Maybe science won't save us. I think that's a lot of his staying power, to be honest.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, we're going to keep talking about this in part two. But as we do with uh, many of our guests, we've asked you to prepare a little little musical amuse-bouche for us. So you picked a couple of songs. Um, you, you can totally pick whichever one you want to go
3: first it could be either the um, I think it was Integrity and uh, Feminazgul. so
1: which, which
2: let's go with uh, let's go with Integrity because most people don't know this but I'm a huge Integrity fan Dwid Hellion is just like the king of hardcore to me so <laughs>
0: yeah he's yeah. fucking great
2: I love Integrity um, both the
1: band and the concept. And um,
0: I'm not a big fan of the concept. Gonna gonna be gonna <laughs> be a hundred with you. I like it when things are shitty. <laughs>
1: but uh, yeah. Uh, JG, talk us talk to us about integrity and um the, the the band, not the concept.
2: Well, I guess integrity is one of those bands that came out of. What's known as the Dark Empire hardcore scene of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, along with bands like Ringworm. And it's sort of a whole scene that is based around like weird occult signifiers, you know, Mansonology, like Charles Manson, Manson family symbols, process church, uh, these weird apocalyptic cults of the 60s and 70s, uh, some odd Scientology references. And a sense of the apocalypse permeate, permeating uh, basically everything uh, that Integrity does. It's very, I mean, it's 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 like an audioscape for Armageddon. And I just really dig it because it sort of is like the crossover between uh, the sort of industrial music I dig, like Ministry um, and even older industrial, like Throbbing Gristle and the hardcore punk scene. So I just really dig that weird mixture of different elements that dwid creates with integrity and the imagery i mean it's just great i mean uh uh, he has a he has a whole album called uh humanity is the devil i mean just the imagery it creates is just mind-blowing to me it's got this whole like just radical angry apocalyptic energy
0: cool it's also exceptionally metallic like Hmm. Integrity along with Ringworm are two bands of the like the very early uh, world of metalcore where you hear it and it the if you subtract out some of the like dork nonsense metal core that would come up later, you hear it and you're like, oh, this is okay, yeah,
2: yeah. Genre well, good. I... Yeah, I want to add one more thing. The other reason I like integrity is like I could never really get into tough guy, hardcore. And Dwid seemed like the sort of guy that like from all the interviews I've seen and everything I've heard from people from the hardcore scene, he was sort of like the kid growing up. That was like kind of weird. So like people didn't really want to bother with him, or, you know, they didn't want to pick on him because they're like, Oh, he's just some weird dude. Uh, you know, leave him alone. Uh, and I sort of dig that. It's not really in the same vein as that tough guy, hardcore type deal you know it's it's much more outsider and i yeah. i can relate to that a lot more than i can the tough guy hardcore shtick
1: yeah this band is cool as hell so which uh, song are we playing
2: howling for the nightmare shall consume
1: that is a good good title so here's uh yep howling for the nightmare shall consume by integrity So we're back. Uh, we got JG Michael from Parallax View with us. We just played Integrity with Howlin The Nightmare Shall Consume. Um, doesn't, uh, in Colorado Space, Space, uh, Benny's room has um, something like All Flesh Will Be Consumed or something in the, on the
2: wall, doesn't it? I, you know, I don't think I caught that, but that wouldn't surprise me because in Stanley's prior movie, The Excellent Hardware, uh, aka mark 13 the monster in it the the robot sort of terminator creature is called uh the mark 13 which is a it's actually a bible verse um i believe the actual verse is um and no flesh at all flesh shall be spared or no yeah, flesh and shall no be spared. flesh should be spared yeah. that that's right
1: that, yeah that's what's on benny's wall okay i I didn't know that nice one so yeah tell us a bit more about um richard stanley as a filmmaker because I, I haven't seen hardware i haven't even seen Island Dr. Moreau, which he didn't actually direct. It was a whole thing. But um, yeah, tell me me more about him.
2: Richard Stanley sort of comes out of the goth music scene. I believe he started by doing music videos for bands like Fields of the Nephilim, uh, very much in that whole 80s, 90s goth scene. And my first introduction to Stanley was the movie Hardware, which is a dystopian sort of artsy futuristic take on terminator in a way uh there's this robot as i mentioned the mark 13 which is actually a government project for depopulation it's a prototype and it starts killing all these people in an apartment and uh this woman who is menaced by the uh, robot has to stop it and uh, the reason she has to stop it is because the Mark 13 is afraid of women because only women can, w- women can give birth so it's like the exact opposite of what the Mark 13 is the Mark 13 is a bringer of death and what's interesting about that movie is that uh, the Mark 13 is sort of painted up in an American flag and before it kills you it injects you with a hallucinogen that smells and tastes like apple pie. And the reason uh, the government wanted it to do that was so that the death wouldn't be uh, too painful uh, for the person, the victim. Uh, It would be more enjoyable. And I always thought it was funny, the apple pie reference. And, you know, the idea of the American dream as a killing machine. Uh, There's a lot of humor in that. That sounds dope. I I like that. Um, I would definitely recommend that one. Uh, Stanley, I think before, the, I don't know if it was before or after Hardware, he did a movie called Dust Devil. I haven't seen that one. Um, he's known for documentaries. Awful. Oh, it's he, after? Yeah.
0: He did a film-length uh, music video for a Merillion album, which is, uh, <laughs> I had totally forgotten he existed uh, at after seeing The Island of Dr. Moreau when I was, like, seven, like, right when it came out, um, which was a bad idea. Uh, (laughs) That was... uh, That fucked my brain up for a long time. Uh, I still find it an inexplicably horrifying movie, like, in a way that I can only cite as related to childhood trauma of watching a movie far too scary for myself, because it's, like, you look at it, and you're like, it's not all that... um, without getting too far into it, he kinda sorta directed it. Like there is people are pretty sure there are scenes that he shot that are in it. And he did write the movie, but there was a whole thing. Um a whole production thing that got him ousted. Um mostly because Val Kilmer was being a big bitch man. Uh mm-hmm. uh but uh yeah then I, I totally forgot he existed until I got way deep into progressive rock well- and then I uh got the a, a special edition of Brave and I was like wait I know this name and then I looked it up and I was like wait that's the island of Dr. Moreau guy and someone's like well not really the island of," and I was like you know what I mean
2: <laughs> well we have, to, we have to mention that when he got kicked off uh, doing, directing the island of Dr. Moreau John Frankenheimer took over and you know Marlon Brando was in the movie a bunch of great actors and they just sort of sleptwalk through it And Stanley was not happy, so he just decided to blend in with the locals uh, and try to become an extra in the movie so he could burn down the sets. (laughs) I mean, a very interesting guy. He also fought with the Mujahideen against the Soviets in the Soviet-Afghan conflict and filmed a documentary about it called Voices of the Moon. Uh, He did a movie on Haitian voodoo practices called The White Darkness. And the one really problematic documentary he did was The Secret Glory, which is about the SS officer, Otto Ron, who was searching for the Holy Grill. And I feel like in that documentary, he doesn't criticize Ron enough as an SS officer. He tries to, I, I think, whitewash Ron. Oh, he wasn't really, you know, he didn't engage in what SS officers would engage in. I don't think that's true. And it's really the only point that I ever felt very uncomfortable with uh, Richard Stanley. Um, but after after his film career sort of went downhill with Island of Dr. Moreau, he ends up getting involved in like the Holy Grail mythology. I think he moved to the René La Chateau uh, because he became obsessed with the Holy Grail and he's really into like esotericism Uh, I've read interviews where he makes references to, like, Illuminati conspiracies. He's a very unusual kind of guy. I love him. Um, (laughs) He also
0: looks, and this is very important, like a chubbier Nicolas Cage.
1: Oh, yeah. He does. Meets, like, a werewolf hunter. And based on, he does look like a chubbier Nicolas Cage, yeah. I I can see that. I can see that.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) You look at oh. it and you're like, are these the same man? And they're like, no. And you're like, but they look, it's like, no, we know they're not the same man, though. And you're like, they look so similar.
2: Have either of you seen his first big return to filmmaking um, from, oh, I'm blanking on the movie. Oh, 2011's uh, The Theater Bizarre. It was an anthology and he did a segment called uh, The Mother of Toads, which was based on Clark Ash and Smith and is also very influenced by lovecraft um if you guys haven't seen that it's worth checking out
1: Mm
2: -hmm. i have have not seen that that.
1: no i'm I'm not i'm not a big horror guy i I don't like most horror movies that i've seen as apart from i hate this term like the um elevated horror movies Mm -hmm. um like i didn't particularly like midsummer or um hereditary before it but um
2: and what, what does that term mean? I've always had trouble understanding <laughs> what it, elevated. That's a great uh, question. It's,
1: it's a terrible, <laughs> stupid term for dumb things. So, uh,
0: yeah, it, it, uh, the easiest way like to describe it is imagine horror that people who don't like horror uh, like, and that's <laughs> elevated horror. Hmm. And yeah, so instead you, of saying that they like horror, sometimes people came up with a term of like horror and good horror. Which is the equivalent of what they're saying, which yeah, isn't I mean, just rude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, see, I a,
2: always go on. I'm
1: sorry. I mean, there's a lot of crappy horror movies that you'll find on Shudder and places, and there are some good ones that get general release, like like this one, or Ariasta's films, or the Suspiria remake, or the original Suspiria. Um, so, yeah, you can kind of make a distinction between the good stuff and the bad stuff, but that doesn't mean it's not all the same stuff. It's just not. It's just a varying quality.
2: See, I always thought that elevated horror was sort of playing with the idea that it was a type of horror that is more subversive and sort of has things to say about society and culture, because I first heard the term when um, Jordan Peele's Get Out came out, and I was sort of annoyed at people sort of saying, oh, this is the first time that horror has become political or subversive. Because if we look back at you know the films of John Carpenter- um, you know, who did Halloween three. I mean, he did the original Halloween, but Halloween three is much more political than people realize. Uh, Toby Hooper, the Texas chainsaw uh, films, the first two that Toby Hooper directed are extremely political. The second one is basically an assault on Reaganism. It compares uh, cannibalism to capitalism. It basically says the uh, highest form of capitalism would be cannibalism. Uh, Another filmmaker like that is Larry Cohen, who did the movie It's Alive, which is a baby monster horror movie, you know, killer baby. But it's actually a metaphor. It's actually a drama, I should say, about a family disintegrating. Um, hmm. So there were always directors doing things that were subversive and political in horror, especially uh, in the period of the Vietnam War. But I guess elevated horror is more just oh this is like highbrow horror more or less yeah it's it's basically crowning
1: the one horror movie that comes out every year that you're allowed to see if you're smart well not even smart right. if you're middlebrow and you,
2: you read the atlantic
0: <laughs> yeah
1: it's, it's, and it's like
0: yeah and credit to jordan peele who like was like pushed back on it at not incredibly hard because ultimately he's he's getting a lot of praise so like why would he Um, and I don't begrudge him for that but it was saying like no I made a horror movie I don't consider it above or beyond other horror movies I love horror so I made a horror movie Um, that's part of what I think is so uh, odd about people's reaction to his work following Get Out that people seemed to only like it because they thought of it as like yeah, it's a horror movie, but also it's whip-smart, so it's okay. Um, and it's like, that's that's prick shit. Stop.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't think anyone would call Color Out of Space an elevated horror movie, even though it has plenty of elements that you'd find in other stuff. And it it does have a critique in there. It, it can be read as a criticism of the family, American life, capitalism, probably. and And it's visually very very interesting sometimes. The performances are good. There's nothing to stop this from being elevated horror. It's just that uh, it doesn't have a huge marketing budget behind it. And we only get to call one movie a year elevated horror. And this one wasn't it. But um, yeah, it, it it is... And yeah, it's not a piece of crap you'd find on Shudder. But it's... At the same time, it's not as... I mean, it it, it comes off comparison-wise, pretty, pretty badly against the film Annihilation. I mean, we spoke about this a bit before the show.
2: They're very similar movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which is a, it was a damn shame, because um, if you're going to make a Color of Space movie now, then it's going to have to contend with Annihilation, because Annihilation, both the book and the film, were very influenced by Color Outer Space. The the film especially, where you know, it. Unlike the book, it's very clear that it's an asteroid. It it does stuff with color. It's yeah, it's it's very very similar. And um, there's a lot of stuff, just stuff from uh, Annihilation that turns up in here, like the kind of refracted glow, which in here is kind of pinkish toned. In Annihilation, it's rainbow, and there's stuff with just flowers growing everywhere. And you know, it's uh, you it can't you can't help but put the two side-by-side. Side. And when you do, Annihilation comes off looking better. Because it's it's just a bit better film um, overall.
2: Which, you know, it's it's a, it's a shame. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I felt like Annihilation... That's a weird movie for me, because I think it's different in the sense that I don't consider Annihilation um, necessarily a horror movie. I, I don't think the alien force in that movie is necessarily very horrific in a way it's almost trying to help the characters escape their traumas um at the end of the movie
1: yeah but on the other hand someone's face gets eaten by a zombie well bear. That, that's also true so, i mean yeah i, I, have a, say, like, I can interpret it you, oddly
0: did you omit the bear like or just seeing <laughs> that, that is true bear.
1: yeah and the crocodile yeah
0: yeah
2: but I, a, I don't i don't think the i forget what's aliens... the boar in the movie uh, no, there's a barrel of okay. crocodile. I, I don't think the aliens in Annihilation are evil, even though they may create things that are horrific to us. the mm. The intent isn't like, um, you know, monstrous. Yeah.
0: Well, I I think that that actually also strikes at something about horror that people tend to. Um, as I was talking to um to a horror writer friend of mine about this, that horror has sort of Uh, spored out in different directions and so I don't necessarily see the um, trauma processing realm of horror as not horror because it isn't focused on being horrifying I think that that which sounds weird to say out loud but I think that there is like a root impulse but it then can diverge and sort of it's like uh, it's like putting a drop of water at the top of a mountain I think this is one of the paths that it can take Um, You see similar with like ghost stories that are more melancholic or about hauntology rather than uh, about like the ghost is going to get you kind of thing. And so I read it as, as being sort of in that world.
2: No, I can definitely see that. I always found interesting what the main character said in Annihilation, um, that it's, it's not trying to, necessarily simply destroy us it's trying to create something new and i felt like that positive framing was like very central uh to the film and i i feel in a way the reuniting of the characters at the end um is much more of a positive note than most people would see it as um i don't know what you guys think of that though um
0: no i i I agree with that i think that's in fact part of so jeff vandermeer the guy who wrote it and who um wrote the book and was very very involved in the film um, and gave a big thumbs up to all of the minor and sometimes like a couple major changes that the film made. He was like, they did what they needed to to make this work as a film and I think it works fucking great as a film now, which I think pretty much everyone agrees with. Mm -hmm. Um, That, uh, he was very much invested in that sort of, uh, he's one of the authors that's very invested in that reclaiming of Lovecraft by going okay, so we have the base material, but what can we point it at that does away with some of the parts that we don't like about it? And some of that positive framing of, like, viewing it as it's inherently horrifying to view yourself as a previous link in some sort of evolutionary chain that's destined to be um, rendered obsolete. That's a really horrible thought. That's sort of one of the base roots of death anxiety is this thought that we are doomed to obsolescence from birth but taking almost like uh, the, the animists or the Buddhists um, view of it which is that that means that the flower is still flowering and taking like pride and joy in that flowering like completely flips the feeling on its head you're still dealing with the same root material it's still based around horror it's still based around anxiety it's still based around death consciousness but it's you know it's like where else can we point that and that's something that i think color out of space like l- lacked a bit it was really visually tight in the end but i felt that it like didn't it didn't have anything to say about what was happening on the screen it was just like and now the crazy part
1: yeah i mean the 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 final bit the the final third was um unlike annihilation which has that whole you know it's trying to change people and um in the film for example the of annihilation uh, tessa thompson's character walks off and kind of basically kind of commits suicide but not by choosing to merge with the the flowers and just become this like flower golem <laughs> and to have her consciousness fractured through the through the zone and um yeah, you don't. We have that in Color After Space because th- at the end of Color After Space, the the monster is just what well, the, the color is basically a Ooga Booga monster. It, it, it like turns a tree into a nasty hand tree that kills somebody, and it blows up. It it's just it doesn't really think about people. It just uh, explodes and flies back to its planet. Can
2: it's, can I give a little bit of a different interpretation of the film? certainly. Well, I, I think a lot of people when watching this, they focus on the Nicolas Cage character. Nicolas Cage is like the selling point, And he's great as the father who slowly descends into madness. Interestingly, he said that a lot of the character was based on uh, his experiences with his own father um, and how his father treated him at times. So I think he gives actually a really fun performance. And I know people make fun of cage for his hamminess, but if he had been around in the 1970s or 1960s, people would be saying, oh, he's like a Vincent Price or a Boris Karloff, Mm -hmm. and everyone would be fine with it. You know, I'm kind of okay with his unhinged performance there, but I really feel like this is a movie about uh, Lavinia, and I feel that she's the Mm -hmm. strongest character in the movie, and I think it's heavily implied that the Keller out of space is actually summoned by her. She doesn't want to be trapped. She feels just suffocated by this, you know, wasp family unit that she's in, stuck in the countryside. She wants out. She wants something more. She wants to see the beauty of the world. She wants magic in her life. Mm -hmm. And I think if you view it through Lavinia's perspective, all the horror of everything happening in it aside, she ultimately gets what she wants at the end of the movie. She wants to be free of the sort of mundane world. She says near the end, as the the sort of psychedelic nightmare reaches its fevered pitch, it's so beautiful. Um and I think there's something very intriguing about that character, and it harkens back to Stanley's hardware in that I think she's actually a much more empowered character than people realize. And I think in a way. As I said, I think she sort of gets her victory at the end. I think, you know, despite all the horror of it, for all the other characters, she sort of does escape. Um, Maybe not in, you know, the way we would normally want to escape, but uh, as I said, she sort of accepts it at the end. She says, you know, it's so beautiful. Um, And I think also, like I said, I think she's the one that sort of summons the Keller. I don't think it's simply an extraterrestrial force.
0: Yeah, she is carrying out the um that Wick and Wright, um very early in the film that they don't really go back to, but he does linger on it long enough that it 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 gives that valence. Hmm. Like you're yeah. looking at it and it's hard not to think that he deliberately wanted that like touch to be there.
2: Well, I mean Stanley in general if you listen to interviews, he, he he sort of has a Madonna complex. Uh, he really he views women very highly. He he thinks extremely highly of women. Um, he sort of elevates them to to a sort of goddess status. Uh, that was sort of the point he was making in Hardware, and I think there's elements of that in this one as well.
1: Yeah, the f- the film it's just reminding me of isn't like Annihilation, but uh, the Witch. Another film about a yeah a family that's on their own, in the middle of nowhere, that comes into contact with this otherworldly force. And by the end you realize this whole all the horror that's been happening to them has been this like initiatory process for the daughter. And mm-hmm. you could kind of read that to what's happening with Lavinia. She unw- She says in her right at the start that she wants to escape. And uh the cosmos provides, but to do that, it's not you know, she's not just going to go off to college. She's going to merge with some alien force and her whole family
2: is going to die horribly. Well, it's also weird because the way the Keller is portrayed in that final climatic, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes, it's alternately horrifying, but it is actually very um, enthralling at the same time. There is a certain beauty to the imagery of, you know, the Keller sort of engulfing everything, that ultraviolet, ultraviolet. Keller, uh, there's something majestic about it. Yeah, it's and, horrifying and majestic at the same time. Yeah, and, it, it, and it's put this family through hell.
1: Like it's done horrible things to all right. of them, and made them do horrible things. But uh, one of the very last things we see that it does is it, like, almost resurrects them. Like they're all sat together on on the couch, just like a regular family at the end. Just one while Ward is has seen them and. Yeah, it, Is it saying that like it's absorbed them somehow and, and they're living some like afterlife in the color? Um, yeah. I don't think there's going to be answers to that, but it's, it's one. Well, that scene where
2: I was just going to say that scene where we go through Lavinia's eyes and we sort of see this, it's almost like a, a Tolkien esque other world. Mm. Um, and it is really beautiful. And uh, the Ward Phillips character is, is also, I guess, seeing it through her. Uh, I guess he sort of rejects it, though, but she accepts it. I do think there is something beautiful about that inner world that we see within her in that climatic moment.
1: Mm. Yeah, the, the alien world that the color has come from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, yeah, now that we've talked about it a bit, it's it turned out to be a bit more ambiguous and more interesting than I initially gave it credit for.
0: It it feels also a little bit like an occult ponderance deliberately. So a, a lot of um, we, we, we talk on the show a good bit about like magic and the occult and how it has some. Some of the frustration you can feel looking online and seeing people who are. Um, like getting into uh, like Wicca or astrology or tarot and feeling like. Well, that's the tip of an iceberg, and there's a lot more iceberg below it. And wanting, and not necessarily co-signing that frustration, just saying that it 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 does hit you sometimes. Um, But one of the one of the elements of the depths that's gone on is that um, one viewing magic as a much less purely literal thing. Like you're not like throwing a fireball, and you're not even necessarily like I'm going to move these rocks around on this fancy placemat that I bought and now I'm gonna get free money or whatever or I'm gonna meet an elf. Uh but what it is it, it tried. It, God knows. Um none of none of our uh none of our spirit molecules have put us in contact with elf culture yet. Uh but that there is uh, an interior angle to it. it it's, it's a very psychological thing in the same way that intense spirituality or intense prayer is, that it's sort of mapping the native psychedelia of the mind in itself um, and the mind for itself that isn't necessarily purely connected to the material physical world outside of the mind. Um, I bring this up because... Lovecraft has sort of penetrated that space and using Lovecraftian mythos uh, terminologies within the magical space has been a thing for the past several decades now, because that sort of half horrific psychedelia actually fits quite well for the same notions of the comparable psychedelia of mentioning like Karanzen or uh, the various demons of the Gosha uh, that they're meant to they're meant to reflect um, sources of power far beyond us in both scale and structure. Um, you even have secular versions of magic, which refer to like the superstructure of the universe with like uh, filaments of um, galaxies and things like that. It'd be, uh, structures that are so unimaginably large that they don't—they dwarf us the way that we dwarf the atoms of our bodies. Like it's just—it's a—it's an impossibly large scale. Um, and so invoking Lovecraft in that same way of that it it's meant to reflect the parallels of the vastness of evolutionary biology, of gravity, of uh, forces like that, which are very real and impact us like very severely, but that we have like no control over, like not even the mildest impact. Um, and placing those in, uh positions of obeisance that, like that's what you know you'd call out to in a worshipful way or pray to or reflect on in meditation. Um and the notion of tying um the Wiccan right with that of saying uh it, it felt very much like an embrace because he Richard Stanley's neck deep in occult stuff. Like that's an open secret about him. Um and we've talked about it here. Uh, so to get someone like that co-signing something like Wicca, which has sort of a a rough position in the world of the occult, um, built off of the fact that the roots of Wicca were... um, So it was actually a member of, I think, the Golden Dawn, and also the Ars Argentum. I know that he was definitely in the Golden Dawn, who is a British... Yeah, who is a a British Reconstructivist. So the whole notion of it was just so that um, people like British people could have a paganism that reflected pre-Christian British paganism. Um and that's all it was really meant for. So then it became very curious for a lot of people when non-Britons started being Wiccan, because it's like why would why would you pray to like like British pagan folk deities? That doesn't um and it doesn't strike people as odd in the same way that say like a white person from Brooklyn praying to a Nazi strikes them as odd. Like, that one we know immediately is, like, that's improper. Like, that's a specific kind of Black and African uh, folk mythology that isn't, isn't for us. But some of these other European ones we feel a little bit more licensed to, and that's not always appropriate. But to get... Sometimes the pushback, though, gets, like, far too heavy. And so to see that little... That little touch from Richard Stanley of, like, no, this is... Like, it's, it's part of the tapestry, like it, and uh, it, it just, like all magical rites, it's like you gotta be very careful what you are asking for in these uh, moments of devotion and moments of ecstasy, because sometimes you receive what you got. It just will monkey paw you. Hmm. And yeah. I think we Jesus. can safely say she got a bit monkey pawed.
2: I I would definitely agree with that. (laughs)
1: um, She even says at one point that she doesn't do curses because they come back at you. And um, (laughs) yeah, she invokes like threefold rule. If you hurt someone, it comes back three times. Um, In in fact, doesn't she say at the very start, um, Ward asks her if it's Wiccan or Alexandrian magic, and she says Alexandrian. So we've been calling it Wiccan here, but it's not. Mm -hmm. But also... Yeah, Gerald Gardner, and this is the Gardner family. Coincidence? Probably not.
3: <laughs>
1: but, um, yeah, it's... Uh, so, to wrap up our thoughts on the film, It's I, you've convinced me it's a bit more interesting than I originally gave it
2: credit for. I thought what, it was just, I wanted to. Oh, I just so wanted cool. to add that there were some things I found really interesting uh, that are very subtle. Like, uh, when Ward Phillips, the the black hydrologist you know, comes to the estate. He's talking to Nicolas Cage and he's like, oh, you have uh, another person living on the estate. And Nicolas Cage is like, oh yeah, so-and-so, Ezra. Uh, and he says, why can I talk to him? And you just hear Nicolas Cage say, I don't think he would like to talk to you. Uh, yeah, there's these like that. subtle hints of like the wasp racism and sort of wasp uptightness, especially uh, the mother when she's like, oh, our son's smoking pot with Ezra. Uh, I could sort of understand why a young girl like Lavinia feels, you know, maybe trapped by her conservative parents in a way.
1: Yeah, I, they don't um, come out as out-and-out racist. Uh, I, the, when I watched this film last night, I, I immediately watched, uh, what's it called, Knives Out afterwards. And that mm-hmm. does a very good job of portraying a kind of a similar kind of family a wasp dynasty they're a bit richer than the the gardeners but um that did a similar trick of convincing you that certain characters were just good liberals but they're actually just as racist as everyone else they just hide it better Mm -hmm. and um yeah i can kind of maybe there's that little bit to draw out in um in here as well
2: Stanley has actually said that in interviews. He said he did want to make allusions to racism and sexism, but he didn't want to do it in a way that would overtake the film. And in a way that may be a flaw of the film in, in some ways, I think it could have been explored a little bit more.
1: Yeah. It, it's, it's really subtle. Um, and yeah, it's, it's bizarre. He doesn't want um, more to talk to Ezra because he's, he's, just a nice old hippie and he's Mexican. Um, yeah. as a, a bit of a weird one. But um, yeah, I think overall, this is, you know, it's, it's one of those films that's like maybe not an a instant classic, but it's definitely worth thinking about. And I think I'm going to think about it a little longer, maybe revisit it at some point because it's, um, yeah, this dude has a, a pretty unique vision and a, a good, a productive take on Lovecraft. He's not beholden to the source material. But he's not going so far that you lose what makes Lovecraft special to begin with. So, yeah, I, I, I like this film. So thanks for, thanks for bringing it up and bring it to our attention. And folks you know, at home, go and, go and watch it, please.
2: I'm glad that I was able to maybe uh, convince you there's a little bit more to uh, The Keller Out of Space. I remember I had the same experience with uh, the Horror Vanguard podcast. We were talking about uh, a horror movie that I love a lot that everyone else hates. Uh, called the texas chainsaw massacre the next oh, generation right.
1: yeah I, lis- I listened to that one yeah was, right the I,
2: one with renee zellweger and uh power rage angry matthew mcconaughey uh we need more power rage mcconaughey he was good in texas chainsaw and uh reign of fire but i was able to convince the host oh maybe there is something more to this so i'm glad i could give a a different perspective a parallax view if you will
1: whoa it all comes back together damn mind blown Okay. There should
0: have been an elf in the movie.
2: Shut up, laggeded. <laughs> Go. Shut up. Can you imagine? You know, I did if... keep thinking of I did keep thinking of Terrence McKenna and the machine elves and DMT while watching this movie, especially the uh the climax. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. it's a DMT trip.
0: <laughs> so that's good, but I meant a regular elf. <laughs> <laughs> It would emerge from the woods, and it, he would say, I've been the color all along, and he would go back to Galadriel.
1: Damn it. I mean, who's an quiet.
0: elf, by the way? For those <laughs> for those at home, Galadriel is a famous elf.
1: We're going to have words about this off off mic. But uh, to, to finish off the episode, to finish off that, uh, you also brought along a another music recommendation someone who uh, has been on the show before and whose music we've played on the show before, but who released some more music while we were on hiatus. So yeah, tell us more about Feminazgol.
2: Well, I wanted to do this one because I've been promising to have her on the show and we just haven't worked. I've been promising to have her on Parallax Views, uh, but I just haven't been able to work out a time. I'm talking about the great Margaret Killjoy, great anarchist author and also does a lot of different types of music. Uh, not just Feminazgul, but also uh, Nomadic War Machine, which is her mm. sort of electronic outfit. And I really dig that as well. But Feminazgul is great because it's an anti-fascist black metal band. And Lord knows we need much more anti-fascist black metal. Because the black metal scene, I was thinking about it earlier today... Uh, because I just did, I just recorded a show on actually uh, a- Aztec Nazi black metal. That's actually a nice. thing, apparently. <laughs> uh, and I was just thinking about how black metal is just infested with national socialist black metal, that NSBM crap. And we need really? more bands that. like Feminazgul. And also, uh, there's another one that you actually had on the show.
1: Oh, don't... Uh, uh, Don Reed? Yeah, there's, we've, uh, Dawn we've right had a and we've had a lot, yeah, a lot of anti-fascist black metal bands on the show.
0: Putra scene is, uh, well, they're death metal, but
2: yeah, all creeps. Yeah, there's that really popular one. Um, oh, neckbeard um, deathcap. Neckbeard deathcap. Neck-Bear death yes, neckbeard mm-hmm. deathcap. Uh, I, I love that you guys had them on, and I think we need more of that. And I think Feminazgul provides uh, a very different sort of uh, take on the black metal genre. And uh, you know, someone called it feminine black metal. And I actually kind of like that. We need more feminine black metal, I guess, and anti fascist black metal.
1: We do. And this show is uh, everyone's favorite resource for finding those because we, do, we try and play anti fascist black metal as, as much as we can. But, like you said, it's not, it's not a huge genre. And, yeah, we, we still want good music. So, if, it, if, it's, if it's that but it sucks, then we're not going to play it. Um, Certain people, you know, we should uh, all
2: like a... we should blast uh Varg Vickerns with like Feminazgul and Neckbeard Death Camp tracks. Just like email him them just to like anger him because Burzum is such a horrible fascist band, <laughs> or like, we I, could I,
0: blast I... him with and this is parody bullets.
2: <laughs> I, well, I can't
1: um contact Varg Vickerns anymore because he banned me on Twitter, um, he got
2: blocked by Varg. Yeah, Gandalf honor. by Gandalf. <laughs> Excuse okay. you. Gandalf
1: the White uh, 19, yes. Um if any if friends of the show, uh please go and cyberbully him in my name. Uh his yeah, it's Gandalf the White 19 on Twitter. Uh if you could post pig poop balls to him, uh then he'll know it's in reference to me. Because I, I posted pig poop balls uh to him and asked him why my pig was doing it and if it was Jew magic. And <laughs> he immediately blocked me. Um,
2: you know, I'm going to have to have both of you on my show uh, to do a dissection of the bizarro, sad world of Varg Vickerns at some point. I think we'll have to do that on Parallax Use.
1: That would be fun. I, I, <laughs> I, one of my ambitions is to interview him at some point. Like I, I, I know no platform in him and all that, but I would totally love to be on on a mic with vibe and just talk to him uh that would be that'd be my dream but uh yep anytime you want us on parallax views then uh let us know but um so which uh Feminazgol song we we rocking?
2: i believe uh
1: the shadow of elder gods is the title well it's almost as if there's some uh thematic confluence between what, what that song and what we we're talking about so who knows: <laughs> So, um, yeah, uh, do check out uh, Margaret's books. they're They're really good. like I've had Margaret on the show go, go back way in the archives and find the, the interview with her. Uh, I think this was before Langdon's time as a co-host, but um yeah, really, really good books about um transgender witches and
3: yeah, it,
1: they're really, really good, and very highly lovecraftian. they're very good. um
0: I, I've got a. Did you just say books about transgender witches? Uh-huh. Can you tell me the name of one right now?
1: Oh, um I can't off the top of my head. Uh, they have right, long titles. Well, I'm gonna
0: I'm yeah. gonna look up. Yeah, look some. up Market
1: Killjoys once and, Is uh,
0: it what lies beneath the clock tower?
1: No. I don't think so. Uh
0: Um I can't remember what, uh, The Lamb will slaughter one. the lion. Yes.
1: The lamb yeah, that one. The lamb something the lion. Uh, one, yes,
0: these look really tight.
1: Uh, the barrel will send what it's made. The lamb will sort of the lion. Yeah, what nice leaf cocktail was an early one of hers. I haven't actually read that one. Yeah, they're they are very good, and she's got uh I think a new one coming out via tour books fairly shortly.
0: Oh, we should have her on again.
1: We damn well should. Um, yeah. So do check her out, check her music out as well, because she's got a ton of uh, four different yeah, I, projects.
0: I, I knew about Feminostical Nomadic War Machine, which, uh, fun, fun factoid, Nomadic War Machine is a uh, Deleuze quote from, from Anti-Oedipus.
1: What? Okay, wow, everything is coming together. It's <laughs> just, everything is all happening at once.
0: People like to act all weird when I bring up Deleuze all the time, but I'm like, look, you can't understand contemporary leftism without him. That's not my fault.
1: (laughs) Uh, Also, Vulgarite Uh, is a a really good project of hers. So, hmm. which is a a William Blake-esque thing. But um, yeah, so yeah, check her out. Um, Go and into the show notes and you'll find links to uh, JG's projects with um, parallax views and follow him on twitter he's at viewsparallax Parallax. Uh, really check out the show like maybe not every single episode will will be interesting to you but like 99% of them will be especially some uh, Barrett Brown one as the last one really really interesting stuff but um, yeah to play us out here's Feminazgol